book of Acts chapter 21, we will read uh, from verses 1 through 26. Acts 21, verses 1 through 26. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with the wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemias, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the thing that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who, are, who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been 
told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice and when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for went into the temple giving notice when the days of perfection would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with with hunger and thirst for your word and for your truth. We ask that you would speak to us. We would ask that you would have mercy on us. I would would ask that you would um, empty myself from my own ideas and thoughts and um, that your word and your wisdom would be imparted upon uh, the hearers this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So last Sunday, we we covered uh, the entire chapter of Acts 20. And as a recap, uh, we we see there that Paul was giving his, uh, Paul in his last meeting, with the elders of Ephesians, he uh, exhibited uh, to us that he was a devoted preacher and missionary. He was a committed pastor. He was a faithful um, evangelist. He was resolved. He walked with integrity. But he also was ministering with urgency. As you could tell that this is the very last meeting that he had with the Ephesians, uh, the elders uh, of the Ephesian church. And he wanted to do and say so much in that meeting, but uh, he had to continue the work that was given to him by the Lord and move on to the next, to the next part of his journey or the, toward the end of his last journey. And we talked also about how our walk with Christ is also marked with suffering and afflictions. Paul himself knew that and he was anxious to get to Jerusalem even though he knew what will be awaiting him. Paul knew that, and he accepted that with all joy. He was not um, hesitating. This calling that Paul was fulfilling is not something just for Paul. It is not just for something for someone who is an elder or a leader in a church. But it's for everyone, every Christian, every believer who is part of God's kingdom. We have uh, a job to do. We have a calling uh, for us to fulfill. Before I move on to... uh, talking about chapter 21 that we that I um, uh, read the first 26 verses of, I want to ask you three questions. And um, as you think about those questions, um, we will hopefully, toward the end of the message, we will get back to cover some of those questions and what your answers might be. I'm not going to ask for answers out loud, but I want you to think about those three questions. After we talk about those three questions, I want to cover also some interesting controversies in the passage. Uh, if you haven't noticed yet, there are some controversies in this passage. Uh, I'll probably say there are three of them. The first one is not that difficult to tackle. The second one is, is difficult. And the third one is the more difficult. So uh, as someone who is going to um, some kind of a, uh, outdoor and you want to see the path, there are a lot of trees out there that you need to kind of clear before you can actually see the path. This passage 
has a path. This passage has a message. Uh, but those controversies need to be addressed so that we can um, get to the, the heart of the message. So after talking about those three questions, we're asking you guys three questions and asking myself as well. We will cover those three controversies. And then the last, uh, the last part will be, um, we'll be talking about the three engines or the three underpinnings of Paul's ministry. So if you're taking notes, those are the three, uh, the three main points um, usually when you hear there are three points in a sermon, you think it's a brief sermon. Not so fast. Uh, each one of them will have some other points we'll talk about. But uh, first, let's talk about those three questions. The first question I want to ask you to think about is, what are you absolutely certain of in this life? What are you absolutely certain of in this life or in your Christian walk with God? Who's willing uh, to die for you, who are you willing to die for? That's the first question. The second one, how do you know that you are accepted by God? How do you know, as a Christian, that you are accepted by God? And the third question is, what is your only hope? What is your only hope in life, and what is your only hope in death? Those are the three questions that I um, I believe and I trust that uh, this passage will address um, and will give us better clarification of how to address those without answering uh, with cliches, but actually something that is real in our, in our mind and our heart this morning. So moving on to the three controversies. Um, the first one is in the first six ch- uh, uh, verses of this chapter. Can anyone guess what this controversy would be? Take a look again at the first six verses of this uh, chapter 21. If you look at verse 4, here is Paul determined to go to Jerusalem. He is told by the Spirit that afflictions and trials will await for him or await him. He doesn't know the exact details of that, but he's committed. He is absolutely sold for the call, and he is going. He's telling people around him all along that this is what's going to happen. He's being, um, people around him are attempting to kind of dissuade him from moving in that direction uh, because of the, the danger. And probably they had some theories such as, well, you know that you're going to go to Jerusalem, that chances are you will be killed, and that will put an end to your ministry. Wouldn't you be more fruitful, more productive in his God's kingdom if you just kind of avoid this or wait a little bit, or do something else in a more safer <coughs> environment? Paul didn't take that argument. I'm sure that, that argument was kind of placed for him, but he did not take that. So multiple attempts over and over again to go talk to him and say, are you really sure... Are you sure you want to do that? And he always, without wavering, say, yes, I am sure. I am certain. I am willing to pay the price. So here's one more time in verse 4 of this chapter. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, it's a capital S. It's not just a Spirit that told them, go talk to Paul. Please convince him to stay. This is not a good idea. It was the Spirit. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. So Paul is right there with those people in, in, this, uh, in this area in, in Tyre. And you have godly people coming to him and say that the Spirit told us that this is not a good idea. Don't go. To me, that's a controversial thing. I think the, the, the underpinning of that or the, the rule that we need to abide by and never ever forsake is the Spirit will not contradict Himself. You will not see the Spirit here with a capital S telling people, we need to go south where somewhere else, the chapter before or the chapter after, it says we are to go north. Paul heard it loud and clear without any doubt that he is to go to Jerusalem. He knew there is a cost and he knew that there will be... Um, trial and temptations and difficulties there and we, I'm not going to talk more about the details of that that will be for the next uh, few Sundays but in this one controversy the spirit will not contradict himself their affection got in the way their human affection and the desire to see Paul longer and more and not have anything harm him caused them to take it another step Sometimes we start in the Spirit. Sometimes we, have, we hear from the Lord and we move in a direction. But as we progress with success, we end up moving a little bit in the flesh as well. So this is something that I feel those, um, this family of Christ, in their, with their good intention, with their good intention, they wanted to kind of preserve Paul for further uh, service and further ministry. Uh, but their affection overran their knowledge. They had the knowledge in their mind, and they knew that this is what Paul is supposed to be doing, but their affection got in the way. It is admirable to be affectionate, but sometimes it's wrong for your affection to, to precede the knowledge of the Word of God. And that's, I believe, is a very important lesson for not just for uh, these believers, but also for us today. I... I wanted to study a little bit about this city of Tyre. Um, this is the city, right now it's kind of nowadays near Lebanon uh, in the Middle East. This is the city that Jesus did not visit. He did not minister or preach there. This is the city or a town that Paul himself did not go and visit there. But all of a sudden, as Paul passing through, he meets this believers. He actually sought out the believers. As soon as he got there, he's asking people, do we have any Christians here? Do we have any believers here? Let's have fellowship together. And that's what we talked about last Sunday. It's very important not to forsake the fellowship of the believers. And he sought them out. But how did this uh, city end up having some believers, some Christians in, uh, and, and, and a church? It's not entirely clear. Uh, but some um, commentaries say that uh, Philip, who was actually one of the deacons, might have been one of the people who actually evangelized in this, in this area as well. Um, but also it talks about a, a prophecy being fulfilled. If you look at Isaiah 23, verse 18, there is a prophecy about the city of Tyre, a city that Jesus himself, even though I, I'm sure Jesus knew about the prophecy, and he didn't go just to kind of make this prophecy kind of fulfilled or checked. Uh, but by God's providence, eventually this city knew uh, Christ, and the gospel was preached there as well. And the picture of those believers kneeling on the beach and praying with Paul is just, uh, I think it's something that we need to kind of reflect on a little bit. Uh, here we are just a few days with Paul, 
not only uh, the men that came out to say goodbye or farewell to, to Paul, but the entire family, their kids, the wives, everyone went out, um, went down to the beach to pray with Paul before he gets on to the next um, leg of his, of his journey. I don't know if you recall, but about six, seven years ago, another group of people that were com- committed and wholly devoted to Christ were actually also on a beach, but the occasion was not as exciting like Paul uh, departing to the next voyage uh, to get to Jerusalem. Seven years ago, 21 Coptic Egyptian Christians were beheaded on a beach somewhere in Tripoli in Libya because of their faith, because of the gospel, because they did not waver. And they could have compromised, but they did not. They knew that the call that we have in Christ has a price, and the price um, sometimes uh, gets to be paid while we are here on earth, even as a young people, they were young, uh, young people. They were, if you look at the pictures, uh, you will see it all over the internet. But it, it shook the entire country. But it actually strengthened the church, the Coptic church in Egypt. 21, 21 Egyptian Christians on a beach, beheaded. And here we have, not, not very far, it's about 3,000 kilometers from this city. Here we have believers in a city that God, in his foreknowledge, designed for Christians to go and evangelize and preach there. So one day when Paul passes by, he finds believers who will encourage him and pray with him and pray for him before he goes on to the next journey. So this is the first controversy. The Spirit will not contradict himself. The second controversy is a little bit harder. And uh, it's in the second paragraph, and it's from uh, verses 7 through uh, 14. Uh, Can anyone guess what controversy that is? It's the follow. This is the, the last one. This is the last controversy that I'll cover. <laughs> this is the hardest of the three. But in that section, you have here Philip, who last time we heard about Philip, he was with this eunuch that needed to be baptized, actually being evangelizing to him, baptized him, and then all of a sudden Philip was taken. He was just translocated somewhere else. And fast forward 20 years later, you have Philip being called the evangelist. There's actually not many people in the Bible, in the entire Bible, called evangelist. I think there's even just one more person in the entire Bible that has a title evangelist next to him. Philip got that honor in the Bible. Um, he was one of the seven deacons. If you think about the story of Stephen, he was one of them uh, during the time when Stephen was actually uh, stoned to death. So he was a deacon. He, he's an evangelist. He's a preacher. He's a church planter, and he's now in Tyre um, and, and helping um, help the church of God grow in that area. So the controversy is in verse 9, and it's controversial not, not to say anything about it, and it's controversial to say something about it, but I will talk about it, and hoping that Charles next Sunday, he will clean up whatever mess I have today. Uh, verse 9, it says, He had... He was Paul, uh, sorry, Philip, the evangelist. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, period. That's it. There's a lot we don't know here. But here is what we know based on this passage and based on um, cross-referencing in the, in the Bible and especially in the New Testament. 
The first thing is the early church was built using men and women alike. This is really, really early in the life of the church. Uh, as I mentioned last Sunday, we're talking about maybe 50, 55, 50 to 60, 80. This is the area where, where we're talking. So just 15, 20 years after uh, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, you have here the Holy Spirit testifying that the church was built not only by men, but also women, godly men and godly women, used as instrument by God to build the church. Second, godly household yields godly children devoted to God. You have here Philip, who is very devoted from the beginning, being a deacon and then an evangelist and a church planter, a godly father. Now he has four unmarried daughters, and the commentary said that this means they were devoted to the, the work of God. They were devoted to the ministry. Um, that's why they uh, forsook uh, being or getting, getting married. Godly household yields godly children. But also it talks about how much this, is, this passage, this uh, parenthetical statement in this one uh, chapter is uh, something to honor Philip for the ministry that he has done. To say, just highlight this guy. Look at his ministry. Look at what he has done. Look how obedient he was. I haven't heard a lot of messages about Philip per se, but this is one area where you can see how godly this man is. It's an honor to Philip who is a deacon, an evangelist, and a church planter. This is the same Philip that was left at Caesarea after baptizing the eunuch, as I mentioned. It is not clear here. You cannot say this meant that they, uh, they prophesied once or multiple times. They prophesied in the house or outside the house. They prophesied as a comfort for Paul, uh, as one commentary said, or not. But it only said that they prophesied. But another very critical point here, that, that's why I believe also uh, the Holy Spirit um, guided Luke to write this in his, uh, in his narrative of the book of Acts, is this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel. Just, just like the first one, the Christians in Tyre was a fulfillment of a prophecy, this second uh, passage also with a fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel 2, verse 28. I think it's a familiar uh, prophecy. It says, Then afterward I will pour out, God, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And I'm going to stop here and I'll move on to the third and the most, uh, most difficult controversy that Jennifer alluded to, which is following the law. It's, uh, you get to, starting from verse 17, and Paul visits, uh, finally now Paul is in Jerusalem, and he visits James. James is the, really the elder, the main elder of the church of Jerusalem. And here we uh, talk about this Nazarite vow. As you can see here, in verse, starting from verse 17 again, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Here's just kind of in, in perspective. Here is an apostle coming with great reports about the gospel preached to the Gentiles. And here on the other side, the, the Jewish church that was uh, established and ministered and served by James, 
and you have this guy coming in and talking about, let me tell you how wonderful the news are coming from the Gentile world. There was no jealousy here. There was no um, uh, belittling of the ministry that Paul did. But the gospel, or the, the words here said that they actually glorified God. After greeting them, he related, meaning Paul, one by one, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they were not jealous. They glorified God. They gave God all the glory. But then we come to the point where James and the elder think about what might happen right now. You have, you have Paul, who allegedly, as you can see here, some slander swirling around. Everybody's talking about in every corner, in every synagogue in Jerusalem, that this guy, Paul, he's a great minister and all, but he's actually tearing down our law. He's basically saying, forsake Moses... Do not circumcise the children. Do not follow the traditions and the customs of the Jews. This is the rumor that is, uh, that is being sp spread in this area. And James, is, James and the elders are trying to figure out what are we going to do here. So they proposed a solution for Paul. They asked Paul to do something that on the... On the outside, it looks pretty controversial. And it, it is controversial. And I, I don't expect each and every one here leaving this room today to have the exact same opinion that I have. In fact, this is my opinion. I have, not, I have seen um, difference of opinions even among big commentaries. No one said, yes, this is absolutely perfect. Or someone says, well, this is kind of compromising a little bit here. So I'll tell you what, as much as I studied this passage, and I tried to be as honest as possible to the Word of God, and tell you what, um, what I think about this passage. But before I talk about this, let's talk about this Nazarite vow. He's, they're basically saying, we have those four um, Nazarite guys who have a vow, and why don't you just help them and pay for the expenses of their vow? So let's talk about what a Nazarite, Nazarite is. And we'll have to go back all the way to the book of Numbers, chapter 6, to, to understand what is a Nazarite. This word, Nazir, is actually very, still very common. Actually, in Egypt, we, we use it a lot when someone has, we call it Nazir or Nadr, meaning um, a mother who loves her children and says, if my child gets this job or go, goes to this such and such college or ha gets this, uh, uh, this marriage planned, I am going to do such and such. This is... Nazir or Nazir. So according to the book of Numbers, Nazir or Nazirite is something that is being done outside or above ordinary, extraordinary things to be done. Nazirite is dedicated by separation. Someone who separates himself uh, to this, to, to, for a period of time. Usually it's about a month. Sometimes it can be longer and it can be sometimes a lifetime. We have some famous... Nazarites in the Bible, uh, such as someone who has a very long hair and eventually end up being tricked to cut his hair, and that is Samson and a few other people. Actually, if, you, if we are paying attention to Charles a few weeks ago, we had Paul also said he had a vow and he had to fulfill that vow. So Paul himself, still not giving up all his Jewish traditions and customs, he had the liberty to follow some of those he knows that these things are not the ones that will actually buy him salvation. 
but willingly and willfully he is saying that he is going to, um, he he's actually going into that path of uh, um, an Azerite vow, and he and that's what chapter sixteen tells us. So this, what is an what is an Azerite vow? It's basically uh, three main components: do not touch anything that has to do with grapes, or vine, or vineyards, or wine. Um, of course, leave your hair untouched, uncut, until the end of the consummation of, the, of this period of time. And as I mentioned, it usually or typically, it's been about a month or so, and then you cut your hair. And thirdly, do not touch or get any close to any dead. So even if your parents, even if your father or mother died during that period, you are not to go. But if you decided to go, which you could or you may, then you have to reset the time again and start all over again after this, after attending the funeral. So three things, and they have significance, of course. In essence, this in the Old Testament, again, a lot of the um, customary things in Old Testament points to Christ being the fulfillment of all that. And I see that in the Old Testament, even though Aaron and his family are the only ones to be priests, it is, it is not forbidden from others to be priestly, to actually walk in holiness. And this Nazarite vow, in essence, is, is, a, is a material or physical um, uh, evidence signifying what, what is to be, a, to, uh, to be holy unto, unto the Lord. So if the priest put a crown on his head, the, the Nazarite will leave his hair to grow as the crown. And then eventually, ultimately, we'll lay down that crown before the Lord. Grapes and vine as, uh, as maybe maybe uh, a sign of uh, seeking worldly pleasures. We are to forsake all that as well if we are to be holy unto God, because uh, there's nothing in the world that will actually satisfy that. And the third, of course, not touching any dead, not getting any close to dead, and that's a signify the 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 results and the end result of sin in our lives. So that Nazir or that, that Nazarite will bring burnt offering, sin offering, and peace offering. Along with that, he would bring unblemished animals, unleavened bread, grain offering, and burn his shaved head. That hair will be also mixed with this or under uh, the burnt offering or the peace offering. Um, and by then, by that time, then his, his uh, vow has been concluded, has been successful, and he can move on afterwards. So here we have James saying, let's, let's think about this. We have those four, and oh, I forgot to mention something really important. A lot of these people, they actually have to leave their job. So financially, it's very straining on them. And it's been customary in the, in the Jewish uh, tradition to have someone else walk in and pay for that person. Because it's very expensive to have an unblemished animal and lamb and all these animals completely uh, without, any, without any mistake, without any, any blemish in them. For someone to buy all that who has not been having a job for about a month or two or three. So a lot of the times you have some uh, godly people to come along and help that weak brother, help that weak brother to pay for the cost of this. So that's what James and the elders are proposing and asking Paul to do. To go ahead and pay for their expenses. Um, and this way, everyone will see you are, you are not 
what they portray you to be outside on the, in, the, in the public square. You have not said, forsake Moses. Paul did not say that. You are not saying that, um, let's just give up everything that has to do with the customs of the Jews. He did not say that. So, um, so that's a little bit about the Nazarite vow. And why did Paul agree? Paul could have said, no, I'm not going to do that. I know there's a price for me to be paid. If I go out, step outside of this house and there is another riot and they're capturing me and arresting me, so be it. In fact, that is actually will happen eventually. But the idea of this vow was not born out of fear from James or the elders. It was born out of a desire to dispel the falsehood or the slander or the smear. And I find that is a noble reason to do that, to comply with that. It also shows obedience and humility to listen to the elders. Paul, the mighty Paul, the amazing preacher and evangelist, he could have said, James, who are you to tell me what to do? Don't you know that I can hear directly from God? But in obedience, he listened to the elders. Also, I want to highlight that nothing he did contradicted who he is. To fulfill this vow, to pay for these brothers, did not have anything contradicting what he wrote, what he said in the past or even in the future. If you look at all of his epistles, nothing really contradicts what he has done here in that vow, to fulfill the vow. But most importantly, and this is, this is the crux of the matter, this is why I believe that this was the right thing to do. That is my opinion after I read all these commentaries, and I, I'm going to reiterate again, there is no consensus agreement on this. But I believe nothing in this approval of this plan um, contradicted or takes away anything from the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ was still preached without being adulterated or modified. It would be very hard for me to come last Sunday to preach to you about how uh, how much Paul walked with integrity and with honesty and whatever he wrote is what he lived and then we come fast forward seven days later and say Paul he messed it up he just listened to just human advice and he just compromised in the gospel he did not there is nothing here in this narrative that said he actually compromised the gospel his overarching goal Paul's overarching goal is his main point salvation of souls that's what Paul wanted that's what he was about he wanted to glorify his master. He wanted to be to emulate Christ by winning souls to Christ. What did he say in 1 Corinthians 9.20? It says that I have become all things to all people. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So that I might win those under the law. In Romans 9 he actually wished that he would be cursed so as to win people to Christ, souls to Christ. This is the person and this is the heart of Paul that actually promoted, uh, prompted him to comply with this plan because he wants to win soul. So as long as it does not, of course, contradict or take away or add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to support the weak. Um, I will give you an example of what uh, I see that maybe happening nowadays, and it, it happens in where I grew up in Egypt. Um, again, this may be controversial, but a lot of the times we have our fellow Christians coming alongside some of the Muslim people because we wanted to 
Show them the kindness and, and mercy and gentleness of, of Christ. Uh, so when they are fasting the months of Ramadan, uh, some Christians, they decide to fast one day and then at the end of that one day invite their neighbors, their Muslim neighbors, to come and uh, have and break their fast together. We, they did not, they're not doing that one day praying for Allah. They are not saying that we believe uh, the Muslim philosophy is a way of life, a world of view. We still are faithful and loyal to Christ, but we want to come alongside this uh, uh, weak individuals and show some of the mercy and the kindness of God. This may be one of the, maybe, example that would portray that a little bit. Um, also, Paul has been adaptable. He's, he was trying to adapt to the situation that is going on, again, without compromising the main uh, points of who he is, what he, uh, what he are in Christ. Um, a theologian by the name of F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, he put this uh, very eloquently, and I think it's, it captured uh, the concept of what happened here. He says, A truly emancipated spirit, such as Paul's, is not in bondage to its own emancipation. To put it in different uh, perspective, a truly liberated spirit. Paul was free. He did not have to comply with this Nazarite vow. He did not have to go under these, to perform some of these customs. But to help his weaker brother, his liberty was not the reason for his bondage. He was not, he was not bound to my liberty like, oh, no, 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 I cannot change that. I am already free of everything that has to do with the Jewish tradition or customs. I am so bound in my liberty. And I think that's really interesting and, and it's just, it's revealing uh, for someone like Paul to say, okay, yes, I am at liberty. Yes, I don't have to do that. But I will do that because I want to win souls to Christ. Uh, Calvin and uh, Matthew Henry, they're saying that this is custom indifferent. These are the customs that does not say that here is what you need to do to win your salvation. This is not what it is. If it was, Paul would not have been part of it because that would have compromised the gospel that he preached. But again, this was custom indifferent that he participated in. Um, I have to move on a lot faster than that. It's 1210. So let's go on to the next. I think this is, again, this is just a summary of what I found in this controversial topic. Uh, it ties into uh, the weaker brother uh, uh, examples that we have in the Bible where we can come alongside a weaker brother to help them so that we can win them to Christ. But the last uh, point that I want to talk about is uh, what are these engines, what are these underpinnings that actually moved Paul and moved him in his ministry? And I think uh, the first one is embracing the truth after a serious conversion. Paul had a serious, serious conversion. And that is uh, explained in Acts 9.15. Christ himself saying that this, this man, I have a plan for him. And if you look at Acts 9.15 quickly. It says, but the Lord said to him, go. He's talking about uh, Ananias who is going to help and disciple Paul. He's telling, um, he's telling Ananias, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is the calling upon Paul. And this, this calling was 
always keeping his heart, like I said last Sunday, just heart aflame. It's always desirous of the ways of God, always desirous to preach and spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second underpinning or the second engine that drove this man's ministry is living out the truth of the gospel. Not just uh, paying lip service to the truth of the gospel, but actually living out the truth of the gospel. In Acts 20, 24, just last Sunday, and as we mentioned, this really the, the hallmark of that chapter in, chapter, uh, in, in verse 24 of chapter 20. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. To do what? To testify the gospel of the grace of God. This motivated and drove him to do the thing that he has done. And to, it explains what, what, what Paul was all about from the beginning to the end. Um, and the third underpinning or engine of, of Paul's ministry is his willingness to carry the cross. He knew what the cost is, and he was not ashamed to carry the cross. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse Sorry, 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. 2 Timothy 1 12. This is what Paul himself wrote, which I which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me. He know who he believed. He know what he believed. He was absolute, like we talked about in the first question. What are you absolutely certain of? Paul was absolutely certain of the call that is upon him. He was absolutely certain of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was absolutely certain there is a price to be paid and he's willing to pay that price. So today's message was not about someone paying for four guys' haircut. It is not. Uh, it's, that's why I said I think there is a path in this passage, but those three controversies need to be addressed so that you can see the path. And the path of this message and the heart of this message is someone who actually did so well right in the equation of life and the ministry. Um, he knew what the cost is. He knew what the price is. But he knew everything that is in his life, who he is, what his life is, even his ministry per se, is not, uh, is not worthy to be counted when you compare the, the, the glory that is about to be received, the crown of glory. And he keeps talking about this race that he runs. He always had this urgency of running the race, urgency of running the race so that he can attain the prize and he can attain the crown. So again, I'm going to ask you, in light of Paul's ministry and life here, what are you absolutely certain of in your life? Do you know who is willing to die for you? And who are you willing to die for? How do you know that you are accepted by God? Alistair Begg, in one of his sermons, was talking about that one question. He said, if you ever answer that question, starting by saying, because I you already flunked the test. You already failed the test. 
How do you know you are saved? How do you know that you're accepted by God? It's not because I have accepted the Lord into my heart and the Holy Spirit is in my heart. And um, talking about yourself, it is all Christ's work. It is all because of the gospel. Because one day, a man decided, even though he says to uh, Pontius Pilate, you say I'm a king. Yes, I am the king. And he said that I'm here to reveal the truth. That one man bought us with a price. That is only the only explanation of why we can say, or we can answer even that question, why you think you're accepted by Christ. Why are you accepted? You believe that you're accepted by Christ. And the third question is, what is your only hope in life? That's an easy one. But when I say in death, the equation changes. Because in the comfortable season of our lives, it's so easy and it's so wonderful to cling to the truth of the Word of God. But once you have some incident, some event, some life event that just shake you and shake your core, then you start to really know if that person is holding on to the truth or not. You can study all your life. We don't know how much you retained in your head until you are taking a test. And those seasons of life, and sometimes they are, it feels and sounds like death. In that moment, what the question is, is what is your hope? What is your hope in life? And in death, and I want to read to you uh, a part of the answer to that in the Heidelberg Catechism. I think it is really uh, important to reflect on this. This is my only hope. This is my only comfort, I'm sorry. This is my only comfort in life and death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins, with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. There was a man um, uh, around the year of 1494 that was born in England. And I, th th that man has changed the history of Reformation in England. In fact, they say that he's the, really the founder of Reformation in England. Um, he was ordained into a priesthood early in his life. He studied in Oxford and Cambridge. Brilliant, brilliant guy. He was influenced by Luther's work in Germany. He realized at some point when he was young that England will not or would never be evangelized using Latin Bibles. In fact, during his lifetime, if anyone, if any father gets caught praying the Lord's Prayer with his children, not in Latin, but in English, he would be killed. He realized that England uh, will not be evangelized without the Bible in their native um, language. One day he was sitting at a dinner and an argument arose with uh, a clergyman and, um, and that man whose name is William Tyndale 
wanted to express his desire to translate, to translate the Bible. And that clergyman said, I w- he w- we would rather have the Pope's truth and doctrines and whatever the po- Pope will tell us than God's law. Because if we start opening the window to translation from the different languages, a lot of bad things will happen. We should keep the people just always relying on us to hear the word of God. And Tyndale did not buy that. He was infuriated at that dinner, and he declared, If God spares my life, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more scripture than your pope. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, game is on. I'm committed to this. I want to preach the gospel of Christ in this nation. And he goes to the bishop bishop of, of London, thinking that the bishop will say, Yeah, sure, go ahead. He did not. He refused. And he realized, okay, it's, it, I cannot do this safely here in England, or at least I, I will not be able to accomplish the work that I want to accomplish here in England. I need to get out of here. And he ended up going to Germany. Twelve years in exile from England. No family. Decided not to get married because he wanted to devote his life to this project. And he's wholly devoted to the call. Multiple attempts trying to capture him. The people in England knew that where, where his whereabouts, they wanted to arrest him, send multiple people to spy on him, try to find him, and he, um, all these plots um, failed multiple times. Eventually, it did not. He finished the New Testament, gets distributed to, to England. Uh, people have huge demand, and every time they see new circulations, uh, new Bibles swirling around, the government takes it and burns it and the demand is ever increasing, and they continue to print more and more and more. He doesn't quit. He doesn't stop. The job is not done yet. You still have the Old Testament. He, while he's on the run, he teaches himself Hebrew language. This guy spoke eight languages and, and uh, understood it, and people say that the way he spoke those languages is as if someone who's actually like, was born and raised in this native language country. Uh, he finished the, five, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, finished them. Um, uh, they, they get translated, but not printed yet. So he had to hold on to that for the printing to be done. Uh, but then again, uh, he had to flee because of the uh, people are trying, going after him. He gets on a ship, and guess what happened? So talking about prayer, you, you were talking about Knox. He was just praying for safety, and then as he finishes his prayer, something happened in the car. This guy was praying for safety, always praying for safety. Gets on a ship with this Old Testament that he spent so many, I don't know how many years, maybe several, several months at least, if not a few years, and then a shipwreck happens and he loses all that work of those five uh, books of Moses. If you think about what would have gone through his mind, like, God, I am running away. I'm decided to devote all my life to you and... As far as I can tell, the Bible tells me that you are in control of the wind and the ocean and the waves, but it happens. He does not lose his trust in the Lord, and he continues the work. Um, Other people tried to kind of negotiate. They said, well, this guy is very stubborn. He's not going to change his mind. Let's try to have some kind of a deal, strike a deal with him. So I believe uh, Henry VIII sent someone to him, and and, uh, Tyndale said, okay. All right. I will stop if 
you do this one thing. If you assign someone else to translate the Bible, not me, I'm willing to go all the way back to England and arrested and be killed if I hear, if I get a promise from the king that he will assign someone to continue the work. Of course, that did not work. And that guy who tried to negotiate with him, this is what he said about him. He said, I find him, I find Tyndale always singing one note. Do you find Paul singing one note? Yes, he was singing one note. In other words, Tyndale would not change his tune. He would not return to England until the king has commissioned a Bible in the English language. Ultimately, he's captured by someone who is disguised as his friends, capture him and bring him, um, bring him to England. Not, but that was not before Joshua, all the way to Second Chronicles, was already translated. In prison, he ministers to people around him. We heard that also about Paul. And his keeper and his keeper's family gets converted to Christianity. And in October of 1536, he's hanged, he's tried, and here is, the, here is the accusations. He said, you believe in justification by faith alone, heretic. You believe in the bondage of the human will by sin, you're a heretic. You command people not to pray to the saints, you are a heretic. These are the accusations of Tyndale. This man was brilliant in his, in his translation. When he started that work, there was no English dictionary to borrow from. He, was ha he would have to agonize over a lot of words that did not exist before his, his starting the ministry. He, he coined words like the ark, or scapegoat, or Jehovah. His work is amazing. Before he gets executed, they, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when he was young, he was um, ordained as a, as a priest or a minister. And... Um, as part of just really tormenting him, they bring some glass and scrape his hands, both his hands, as if to take the anointing from him. And of course, his hands are bleeding. And ultimately, they, they, uh, he gets um, executed uh, by hanging and burning. Uh, and the way they did it was just atrocious. Uh, Gunpowder just sprinkled around him. So when the fire is set, his body was blown into pieces that there was nothing left to bury. So here's a man that was sold for Christ. Paul was sold for Christ. He did not waver. He did not change. He knew there was a cost. He knew there was a price. I want to close by just reading Philippians 3. Philippians 3, starting from verse 7. Philippians 3, starting from verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Amen. Let us pray.